Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. Welcome everyone, thanks for tuning in. This week we read a challenging parasha in what really has been a string of challenging parashiot as we've approached the end of the book of Numbers. This week's double portion, Matot Masse, will bring the book of Numbers to an end. It comprises Numbers chapter 30, starting at verse 2 of chapter 30, through 36, which is, of course, the end of the book of Numbers, the end of the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And as the Torah approaches the end of this period of wandering, it starts to focus forward. It begins to focus on what it will be like to enter the land of Israel, to settle in the land of Israel, to live alongside, or as we're going to see this week, not live alongside the people in the land. Now, when I read this double portion, I have a tendency, and I think I'm not alone, to focus on the second of the double portion, Masse, which is a list of journeys. Masse actually means journeys, and it's a list of all the places that the Israelites have been over the last 40 years. It's sort of a neat way to tie up this part of the story and move forward. But as I was reading the Parsha this week, I was struck by something else, something that I think it's easy to gloss over, or at least often desirable to gloss over, which is that earlier in the parsha, in Matot chapter 31, we have a commandment to go to war against the people of Midian. It says, Vaidaber Adonai al Moshe Lemor, the Eternal One spoke to Moses, saying, Nekom nikamta bnei Yisrael me'et hamidyanim, avenge the Israelite people on the Midianites. And then God says, You will be gathered to your kin, which is to say, You, Moses, will die. This is your last command, your last job as leader of the Israelites. This commandment to go to war comes on the heels of something that happened two weeks ago, where Israelite men were seduced and led astray by Midianite women, seduced into worshiping their gods, abandoning their fidelity to to our God. And there's an implication that this was a plot, that it was a way of weakening and attempting to destroy the Israelites. And so this war against Midian is seen as revenge or as a counterstrike against the Midianite attempt on us that just happened. So Moses pulls together an Israelite army, and they go to war. And what the Torah recounts here in Numbers chapter 31 is an incredibly bloody and incredibly troubling account of this campaign. It says, Vayahargu kol zachar, they slew every male. And it lists the five kings of Midian who were all put to the sword. And then it says the Israelites took the women and other non-combatants of the Midianites captive and seized all of their beasts and herds and wealth as spoils. Then they destroyed all the towns by fire. And as if that wasn't enough, when the people, when the soldiers get back to Moses with all of these captives they've taken, all of these slaves that they've captured... Moses gets angry at them 
for not having killed enough people. Moses says, you've spared every female, but these are the very ones who induced the Israelites to trespass against the Eternal. So Moses commands further bloodshed. You can see why I'd have a tendency to skip over this part in favor of the second half of the Parsha. So what are we supposed to do with this extraordinarily challenging, extraordinarily troubling account of war that the Torah presents to us here at the end of the book of Numbers? I think that it would be easy to try to minimize or explain it away. For example, we might say to ourselves, you know, this is probably an exaggeration. The numbers of dead described here are really high, really unreasonably high. And furthermore, the Midianites weren't wiped out, even though that's what the Torah describes here, because they're going to show back up again in the book of Joshua. So historically speaking, this probably didn't happen, at least not the way it's described here. And that would be one way to help us feel better about it. Another way to help us feel better would be to say... This is the product of an earlier time and place. War was harsh. These were the realities of war. The Torah describes something that we'd rather not think about, but that was the way of the world. And that would be true too, and that would be another way to help us feel better about this campaign of extreme violence that is described in our holy book as having been something that our people carried out. A third way to minimize it would be to say, it wasn't really us, or it doesn't really reflect us. One Midrash tries to explain that Moses got angry. Moses acted on emotion when he ordered further bloodshed at the end of the campaign. God didn't really command this, and therefore you could say, it doesn't really reflect us per se. It doesn't really reflect our values. Any of those would be a way to minimize or explain away this campaign. But the reality is that this is here, despite the fact that it's probably an exaggeration, despite the fact that it reflects a certain time and place, despite the fact that Moses may or may not have been acting on his own emotion when he ordered further bloodshed. The reality is that our holy book recounts an act of extreme violence that Israelites perpetrated on another people, on a neighboring people in ancient times. This is something that somebody considered important enough to write down in our holiest book, and it's been handed down through the generations of our people, and we have received it as part of our inheritance. And therefore, as people who consider this Torah to be ours and to be sacred text, we have to contend with it. We have to contend with the fact that this is here without minimizing or explaining it away. Dealing with the hardest stuff from your past, from your heritage, isn't always easy, but it can be an act of healing. This week here in Canada, a lot of the headlines are about the Pope's visit here. He's come to apologize to Indigenous leaders and the Indigenous Canadian community for the various ways that the Church was involved in genocidal acts against them by forcing Indigenous children into residential schools against their will and against the will of their parents, by disallowing them from learning their own languages and their own cultures, by maltreating and malnourishing, which led to so many deaths. The Church 
among many others, has been involved in perpetrating a deep wrong against indigenous people in North America. And it took a long time, but the Pope showed up in Canada here this week not to minimize it, not to explain it away, but to face it and to apologize for it. Yesterday he said, I'm quoting here, In the face of this deplorable evil, the Church kneels before God and implores his forgiveness for the sins of her children. I humbly beg forgiveness for the evil committed by so many Christians against the indigenous peoples. Those are the words of Pope Francis yesterday in Alberta. Now, I think there's lots of room to question whether this is enough. Some indigenous leaders have suggested that he's placing it on individual Christians rather than on the church, or that there's far more that needs to be done besides just this apology. And I think there's truth to all that. But at the same time, the very act of apologizing, the very act of beginning to face up to this thing that the church perpetrated, is already a move toward healing. Not the completion of healing, but the beginning of it. I raise this because I think that a very challenging text, like the one that's in our Parsha this week, demands an approach not unlike this one. I'm not calling for an apology per se, since first of all, this may or may not be historical, and second of all, there aren't any Midianites around. What I'm suggesting is that we need to deal head-on with the fact that violent and hateful motifs like this one are present in our tradition, as they are in fact present in almost every tradition. Rather than trying to minimize this, or explain it as the product of an earlier time or of somebody else's ideas, I think it's important to say, this is ours. We wrote this. We might have done this. We don't agree with it anymore, and we are committed to learning from it. We need to learn from this Parsha that there have been moments in history where Jews have hurt others. That's true, even though it's also true that anti-Semitism is real and that we've also been victims. We need to learn from this passage that hateful and violent motifs are sometimes part of our tradition, and we need to be able to admit wrongdoing where wrong has been done, whether it's against Midianites or fellow Jews or Palestinians or even the people in our own lives that we've hurt. In the end, a story like this one in the Torah isn't an indictment of all of Judaism, of all that we are. I think that's what we're afraid of, that if we did something wrong, it means we're bad. But that's not the case, and especially if we can acknowledge those wrongs and learn from them and commit to doing things differently from here on out. So I'm glad not to gloss over this story this year because I think there's a lot to be learned from it, both as individuals and as a people. With this Parsha, we bring the book of Numbers to an end, and we move forward into Deuteronomy. And of course, you can only really move forward when you also take stock of your past. When we end a book of the Torah, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. Be strong, be strong, and let us find strength in one another. I'll see you next week as we begin the final book of the Torah. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, please leave a review on your podcast app, and please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. You can also join us in our Facebook group, 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss.